in the world is Robin Hood such a popular folk hero? I mean, the guy's a thief, right? He's a criminal. That usually makes you the bad guy. But somehow with Robin Hood, we decide that he's a good guy. Why is that? Well, obviously, it's because Robin Hood's a little bit different. He robs from the rich to give to the poor. And we recognize Prince John as a dirty old coward who's just oppressing people. And so, therefore, we justify, we rationalize what Robin Hood does, and we see him as a good guy, and Prince John as a bad guy. We look at Robin's theft as righting wrongs, dealing with injustice, now, the remarkably successful Ocean's Eleven film franchise, the remakes being much, much more popular even than the original, as, as that film franchise developed, it's building on the same theme. It's taking this idea that these prot protagonists in the film, uh, they conspire to rob a casino owner, and we are to believe that the casino owner is a worse guy than the guys that are stealing from him. And so we have this, this portrayal, this idea that uh, they are, even though they are in the midst of crimes, because their crimes are somehow justified or against someone who is a worse kind of person than they are, that that's a good thing. And of course, it doesn't hurt that Danny Ocean's team of rogues is charming and handsome and very well-paid actors. But I digress. In both cases, we change our view of stealing based on a subjective internal standard. Now, whether regardless of what we're talking about here, we set legend and fiction aside, we do tend to change our views of stealing, cheating, and any, any number of other sins according to a subjective internal standard, depending on who's doing it or why. Especially, it turns out, when we are the ones doing it and we feel justified. We steal in many ways. We'll talk about that a little. Now, in Ephesians 4, it's reasonable for us to presume that Paul is addressing people not that much different than you and I. In verse 28, he tells them to stop stealing, to work, so that they can share with others. A core reality for today as we look at this verse is that a life that fits a child of God sees wealth, work, and worth through God's eyes. A life that fits a child of God sees wealth, work and worth through God's eyes. As we are dealing with this, I'm not trying to bash Robin Hood or Danny Ocean. George Clooney makes a very convincing Danny Ocean. That's not really my point. But we do change the way we think about stealing and theft depending on whether it is you or me. Depending on whether it's something being taken from me, where I'm being taken advantage of, or whether I'm taking advantage of someone else, which of course I would never do, so I spin it in a way that is palatable and socially acceptable. I would never be like Al Capone 
although the numbers on my tax forms may not match exactly either. I would never be like that terrible idiot driver over there, right? Because the idiot driver is the guy that's, that is going slower than me. And the maniac driver is the guy that's going faster than me, whatever speed that might be. We change our standard. But God doesn't. And so Paul, as he's talking to these Ephesian folks in the first century, is telling them, hey, what you're used to doing, that no longer applies because you're not who you used to be. You used to be just like everyone else. Whether you were Jew or Gentile, you were a Gentile. You were dead in your sins. You were outside of God. But in Christ, he has raised you from death to life. When we receive the grace of God offered to us in Christ, Jesus died in my place, in your place. And he took our sin to the cross so that every part of our shortcoming has been covered by what he did in our place. And when he rose from the grave, that's essentially saying that the check cleared, that the sacrifice was accepted, and there's nothing left to pay. Now, if we recognize that grace by faith, now we become a new creature. Everything that was us is gone. And everything that is us is in Christ. Back in Ephesians 3, Paul talked about that, or Ephesians 2, Paul talked about that, and he said, this, this is who you were, just like everybody else. You followed the desires of your flesh. You went according to the world's way, controlled by the one who rules this world, the devil. And we were all, just like the rest, by nature, objects of wrath. But now, now in Christ, we have become something new, something different. We have become children of God. Our entire being changes. Now when that happens, he says in Ephesians 4.1, we need to start living like who we are and not like who we were. Ephesians 4.1 says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. You can't earn God's favor by living right. You can't lose your status as His child by messing up. But if you are His child, your greatest desire is to please Daddy. To demonstrate your love for Him above everything else. That's what a child of God does. Now we're all still learning to walk, and so we still stumble. We stumble in many ways. The difference between the Christ follower and the unregenerate, the unsaved, natural person is the Christ follower can never be okay with that again. My sin now breaks my heart, not because I might get caught, not just because I might be punished, not simply out of a fear of God's judgment. Those are all low-level things. 
And they're valid, but they're low-level things. No, now as a child of God, I'm motivated by the fact that my deepest, greatest desire is to please Him, to bring honor and glory to Him, so that when I sin, it's not just, man, that's going to catch up with me, but, oh my goodness, I broke my daddy's heart. I don't ever want to do that again. As we look at what Paul is saying here, in regard to stealing, he's not just talking about the act of stealing, but he, he seems to be talking about something bigger. If you look at verses 25 to 32, Paul has laid out a number of things in this chapter as he establishes the groundwork for Christian living. Starting in verse 25, he says, Therefore, in light of all these things that I've already said, you weren't taught like, like the world, you don't live like the world, you don't think like the world. Because of that, verse 25, therefore each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. We looked at that a few weeks ago. Last week, we looked at verses 26 and 27. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you're still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. Today we see verse 28. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, so that they may have something to share with those in need. He continues, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs so that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Chapter 5 begins with following up on that. He says, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. As we look at verses 28 and 29, I'm sorry, verse 28 specifically, he's telling us that a life that fits a child of God sees wealth, work, and worth through God's eyes. There is something about these first few things. As we look at this dishonesty, and we look at anger, and we look at stealing, there seems to be a prevalence among the people that he's writing to. Remember, Paul is writing to Christians, people who have come to Christ, who have received Jesus Christ as Lord. They have been born again. They are gathered together as a body He's been instructing them in the first three chapters about what that means. You have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Your entire identity is changed. You're not who you were. You're not your natural person anymore. You don't identify as your race. You don't identify primarily as your gender. You don't primarily identify by your past, by the sins that have defined you, because they define you no longer. All of this is caught up in the wholeness of, that is redemption in Christ. And the entire message of the book is that in Christ, God is bringing 
all things together under his kingdom rule. Now, here he's saying, look, all y'all got honesty problems. You lie when you don't even know you're lying. You have a real issue with shading the truth. You got to stop because that doesn't fit who you are. And particularly in the body of Christ with your brothers and sisters, if you're lying to someone who is in the same body as you, you are lying to yourself. When I sin against you, I harm me. And he goes on to say, be angry and don't sin. When you're angry, because you're going to be angry, don't let it drive. Don't let it control you, because if you let that anger drive, you're just giving the devil the wheel. Now he's in charge. You've given him a foothold in your life. And he gets to steer you when your emotions take control. Now we can recognize that there are lots of subtle lies that, that come into our lives. And we can recognize, and that includes half-truths and omissions. We can recognize that it, it, it's pretty easy for all of us to get angry, amen? How many of you have been angry already this weekend at some point? Right? <laughs> Some of you are probably angry this morning on the way to church. If there's more than one of you in your family, it's a good chance you were having an argument at some point on the way to church. It seems to go that way a lot. The devil works really hard to get us in the wrong frame of mind before we get here. But most of us, when we talk about stealing, are going to think that doesn't really apply to us. Stealing is obvious. Don't steal. Stealing is bad. In fact, it's one of the Ten Commandments. Let's turn there real quick to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. If you're not sure where Exodus is, go all the way to the beginning of the book. The first book of the Bible is Genesis. Exodus is right after that. God is giving Moses this summary kind of a cliff's notes if you will or or spark notes for you younger people of the law and you may be familiar with them or you may not just to kind of briefly go through them verse uh, starting with verse 1 of exodus 20 and god spoke all these words i am the lord your god who brought you out of egypt out of the land of slavery you shall have no other gods before me first command no idols, no, no one, nothing in front of God. Second, you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of the of those who love me and keep my commandments there's a lot we could break down in there but that's not our purpose today so we'll press on so no gods before him no image to worship we're not creating idols god first no imitations second or third you shall not misuse the name of the lord your god for the lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name Fourth, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day 
is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them. But he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Now in these first four commands, these are sort of vertically directed. These are commands in our relationship to God. We worship God first, only, always. It's only God. Nothing is put ahead of him. Nothing intentional, nothing unintentional. We don't worship religion over God. We don't worship our job over God. We don't worship our spouse or our children over God. God first. He is the priority, period. And we don't try to aid our worship by creating some kind of an image that helps us picture God. That inevitably, now this became a a real central piece of the Uh, of the icon controversy back in the Reformation and post-Reformation times in church history. I would love to talk more about that, but if I do, we won't get to lunch, so we're going to keep pressing on. But this idea of capturing the image of God for our worship ends up creating an an idol in the same way that tribal religions worship various characteristics of God without worshiping God. If you live near a a volcano, you may worship God in his wrath out of fear. If you live near, if you live in Tahiti on the beach, you may worship the beauty and placidity of God. In all of these things, we get just a picture of part of God, not the fullness of who he is. And he tells his people, Israel, no, we're not doing any of that. No images. This is about true worship in spirit and in truth. Third, When he says, do not misuse the name of the Lord, when I speak the name of the Lord irreverently, when I use it to swear an oath, and I do not take that oath seriously, he goes into great detail on this later in the law, I dishonor God, I dishonor myself, I distort the image of God, I invoke God wrongly. Misuse of the name of God dishonors the Creator and King. Fourthly, when we see the Sabbath, The Sabbath is set aside as a day to honor God. I would keep this in mind, by the way, in the background as we're looking at today's passage on stealing, on working, on sharing. The Sabbath was established before the law. You remember back in Genesis, that was, uh, you know, the, the whole creation story. God creates everything in six days, rests on the seventh, says, remember this day and keep it holy. The point is not the day, the point is the rest. The point is to make sure that we recognize that we do not provide for ourselves, God provides. I got six days to work. Now most of us don't really get full six days. We expect to get five days of a work week most of the time. Some jobs that's not the case, but we're constantly working to shorten our work week, aren't we? Get more vacation time, more time off, more leisure time. You're going to have a hard time making a case for that from this. God says work. Work is good. Take it seriously. Work your six days. If you take other days off, that's fine. That's for you. But this day isn't about you. It's about you remembering who is God. It's the same purpose as tithing. 
The idea of the tithe then and now is to honor God and to recognize that whatever I've got isn't mine to begin with. It's a token that demonstrates my attitude. The Sabbath is just like that. To say, I got more work to do. I got, I got eight days. I mean, I need to be working eight days a week, right? And as I do this, I'm striving in my own strength. But the Sabbath reminds me, this is not about working and getting and working and getting and working and getting. It's about working and trusting that God will make ends meet, that God will provide what is needed when I honor Him above everything else. That's hard for us to swallow sometimes. Because we have a society that's built on, maybe you don't recognize this, but Western civilization is built largely on the values that came out of the Reformation back in the 1500s. And the Protestant work ethic that came out of that, we'll talk about it a little bit later, the Protestant work ethic that came out of that saw all labor done for the Lord as a sacred calling. But we've gone beyond that to worship the work rather than to use it as an act of worship toward God. We do that with a lot of God's good gifts. We twist them around. Before I go too far on a side trail, we wanted to take a look at those commandments. Now the second half of these ten commandments, I say second half, but my math is a little bit off, six of these ten, okay. now they begin to focus horizontally, looking at our relationships with other people. Honor your father and your mother, that's in verse 12, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. This is his command for Israel. Right up there, and actually before you shall not murder, is honor your mother and father. If you think it's a big deal for God, it made the top ten, right? Next, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. Huh, sounds familiar. Maybe we'll see that in today's passage. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male or female servants, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So, honor your parents. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet. You may see how some of these are tied together. As we talked about dishonesty, dishonesty bleeds into this greed picture we're talking about today because when I want what I don't have, that's coveting. When I covet, I want what I don't have, and I desire it strongly enough to do whatever it takes to get it. It can lead to all sorts of mistreatment of my fellow man. Dishonesty, lying, stealing, obviously, even murder. These things all connect as everything does in God's created world. A life that fits a child of God sees wealth, work, and worth through God's eyes. When we take a look at, at this reality that God has always had the same standards 
in the Old Testament and the New, Jesus said not one tiny piece of the law will pass away until it's accomplished everything it's set forth to do. In other words, if you think that Jesus came in as Mr. Nice Guy, God in blue jeans, and said, hey, it's cool, man. Everybody gets in. Let's just live peace, love. Let's, let's just be happy. That's not Jesus, right? He said the law stands. But I'm here to cover your failures. I'm here to remove your debt. I'm here to pay your penalty so that you can receive the grace of God because you can't meet the standard of the law. If we just had these ten, if we didn't have the rest of the descriptions of God's detailed commands, we couldn't even keep these. I don't make it through a day without letting something usurp God as my priority. There are lots of places that I find myself coveting without even realizing it until pretty soon I'm like, man, I'm going to have to stop car shopping if I'm going to you know, keep doing these. I see Darcy's Jeep. I'm like, wow, that's awesome. I look at that truck over there. Oh, man, that's great. I really wish I had that. And very quickly, the devil can turn these things into God's not blessing you. Don't you wish you had better? Why can't we get good stuff? What's wrong with my life? Godliness with contentment is great gain. Coveting leads to all manner of sins. That's why as we deal with today's topic, we want to see it as getting rid of greed. When Paul tells the Ephesians to stop stealing, he's not saying it theoretically because no one is stealing, and I just want to warn you. This is clearly something that is prevalent. Now, I think it's highly unlikely that it was the normal habit for most of them to be pickpockets. Maybe. I don't think so. I don't think that it was the normal habit for most of the people in this church to go breaking into other people's homes and steal their goods and, and money. Maybe. I don't think so. I think what Paul is addressing here is an overall habit of wanting and taking, coveting that which I do not have and doing whatever it takes to get it. Why would I say that? Well, he couples this do not steal. If you, if you were stealing, and he doesn't even say if you were stealing, he's saying those of you who were stealing, so what's going on, you need to stop. You must steal no longer. Instead, and he puts these things in contrast, in juxtaposition, stealing versus working honestly, diligently, with your own hands. Now, that's not a, uh, I heard this once uh, declared as a God condemning white-collar jobs, that you should be working in manual labor. That's a gross misinterpretation of what he's saying. That, that distinction didn't exist, so that's silly. But what he is saying is work, earn. Do something. And not just do something so that you can get something, but do something to earn something so that you can give something. The motivation for the Christ follower, for the, the body of Christ, is not just to get a better car, a better house, a nicer cable package, new carpeting, 
nicer clothes so people can look at me and think how successful I am. The motivation for the Christ follower is, how can I earn enough to do more of God's work? How can I continue to broaden my circle of influence for the glory of God? How can I help those who can't help themselves? Now at the same time, the same Paul writes to the Thessalonian church, this is the rule I gave you from the beginning. If a man will not work, he shall not eat. Stand up, earn. That's the calling. But there are those who would work but cannot work. Or work, but they cannot be in a situation where they make enough to cover. That's what they have brothers and sisters in Christ for. So that in the church there should be no need because we share with one another. We cannot share with one another apart from earning. Let me press forward. A life that fits a child of God sees wealth, work, and worth through God's eyes. As we have been, we will look at three general areas reflecting the reality of Christ. We'll take a look at how Christians get, uh, steal. And we'll also look at uh, putting on a life that fits. Reflecting the reality of Christ, how do Christians steal, and putting on a life that fits. As we're talking about the reality of Christ, we want to show His character. Notice this. We reflect Christ when we see earthly treasure only as a tool to glorify God and serve others. We reflect Christ when we see earthly treasure only as a tool to glorify God and serve others. Um, let's go straight to the New Testament and take a look at Matthew chapter 5. If you're still in Ephesians, it's back to the left. The first book of the New Testament is Matthew. And we'll be looking at a passage that is often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, just following the Beatitudes, we see picking up in verse, um, let's jump to verse 14. Jesus tells those who are listening, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Makes sense, right? It's up on a hill, everybody can see it, there's nothing blocking it, towns produce light, everybody can see it. You're the light of the world, you're like this town. People are going to see you. He continues in verse 15, Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So Jesus is saying here, we want people to see the good things that you do, but not so that they can look at you and say, what a great guy. Man, I wish I could be like her because she's so wonderful and generous and loving. And we get awards, buildings named after us, and statues, and blah, blah, blah. All of which will burn. He says, do these things. Do the right thing. Do the good thing. And it will shine. You don't have to draw attention to it. You're already in a darkened sky. When you are a star in a darkened sky, you will be seen. So stop 
trying to put people's attention on you as if you are the light, you are a derivative light, you are essentially the moon, reflecting the light of the sun. And when you shine your light and people see the good things that you do, the point, the object, is not that they will glorify you, but they will glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, if we keep that in mind, then the next part makes a little bit more sense. Jump to chapter 6. The first four verses, he says, same, this is the same discourse. Jesus says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. Now, it sounds like he's saying just the opposite of what he said earlier. It's two sides of the same coin. When they see your good deeds... They glorify your Father. Here, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. It's not about them seeing you. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. When you get praise from people, that's all the praise you get. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. Two different types of glory going on here. That which glorifies me, Jesus is saying, run from that. Stay away from that. You need to make sure that you are being secretive about your giving because you want reward from your heavenly Father that lasts forever. Not praise from people that lasts just a moment. It's important for people to see the difference between your life in Christ and your life before you were in Christ. Or, or the life of those around you. So that they can give glory to your Father in heaven. But if you're doing it to be seen by them, you just gave up your reward because you're seeking it here rather than above. Now with those two things in mind, we have that, that, that contrast here. He continues talking about this a little later on. Jump ahead to uh, verse 19 of chapter 6. With those things as a foundation, moving into what he's about to say here about the nature of wealth, and the, the perspective of godly people and understanding treasure and our tendency to worry about provision, he says this, starting in verse 19, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? In other words, see things rightly. We need to view things the way God views things. 
He continues in verse 24, No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Elsewhere, when Jesus says that the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath, this is his point. The Sabbath, the tithe, these acts of worship are designed to remind you who you serve. Don't serve money. Don't serve your status. Don't serve your reputation. Don't serve your job. Serve God. Demonstrate that by saying, you know what, I really need to work. But I will not give up worship. I will not work seven days because I need to know that I can survive and thrive resting not in my own strength but in God's. Well, wait a minute. My, my boss requires it. Who are you going to serve? Now, I'm not telling you how to apply this in your particular life. The day is not the point. The worship is the point. The understanding that my seven days can't accomplish nearly as much as God's six days. That my 100% of my income can't accomplish nearly as much as 90% when I'm honoring God. And ultimately, it's all His, so I want to use all of it for His purpose, for His glory, rather than for myself. So giving 10% off the top is a token to remind me in the same way that this wedding ring reminds me that I'm married, that 10% that I give reminds me who I serve. So, stay in Matthew, but turn to chapter 19. Chapter 19 of Matthew. Most of you are familiar with this story, but again, we're setting the tone of an attitude, a mindset that sees wealth as a tool to glorify God and serve others. Matthew 19, starting with verse 16. Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Okay, he's already off track because he's trying to earn eternal life as if you can be good enough to impress God. Good luck with that. But Jesus, he kind of brings that into, into focus by saying, why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there's only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Elsewhere, we see clearly that the commandments are not going to bring life. So he gives this to him. He says, okay, you want, you want to do it? Keep the commandments. And the guy gets specific because just intuitively he recognizes, I can't keep all the commandments. So which ones do I have to keep? Jesus, give me the deal here. Cut, cut me the deal. What's, what's the best option I've got? If I'm going to keep some of the commandments, what commandments do I need to keep? Paul later on will clarify for us, if you break the law at one point, you're guilty of breaking all of it. Jesus here says, well, let's take a look. You got that top ten list, right? Jesus replied, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony, honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus is being kind to him with this course of conversation because what he could have said is, right now, you're lying. So you violated that one. Because you have not kept all of these perfectly. You think you have, but you had to adjust your sliding scale to make it fit. So you've kept them superficially, but back in chapter 5, Jesus said, all this stuff that you heard about the outside, don't murder, I'm telling you, don't be hateful in your heart. Don't be angry in your heart. Don't commit adultery, I'm telling you, it's an inside job. Before you commit adultery with your body, you've lusted in your mind. You've already sinned. So this guy's off track. But Jesus, in his kindness, tries to clarify it for him. And he says in verse 21, if you want to be perfect, that word here really means complete. If you want to be lacking in nothing, go, sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Dump your treasure here to serve others and prioritize God, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then when you've done that, come, follow me. Verse 22, when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. It's weird that he would be sad, isn't it? Because he asked Jesus, what do I need to do? And he gives him an answer. He didn't like the answer because the answer wasn't as practical as he wanted. I want something I can do, something tangible. If I do this, then I'm good, right? But the law has more to do with what's going on inside than it does with what's going on outside. So Jesus clarifies. He gets to the heart of the one thing the guy doesn't want to let go of, his stuff. His stuff, his status, his comfort. It might look different in your life and mine than it does in his but we all wrestle with it. I want to give, but I don't know if I can afford to give. Jesus is saying, sell it all. Demonstrate that the stuff doesn't have a hold of you. Then you can come. But the guy's sad. Why? Because he got a lot of stuff. It's easy to give up stuff if you ain't got no stuff. But he got stuff. And it makes it really hard to let go of. I find for a lot of us, we think greedy is what other people do. But greedy is that attitude that says, I have to watch out for myself. I have to take it. Now maybe that's earn it. Maybe that's steal it. But in any case, I'm stealing from God when I have that attitude. I'm stealing His glory. I'm stealing His opportunity to provide. What God is telling us is, trust me, I'm God. You're not. Your labor, your effort, to the extent that it is honoring and glorifying me, I will bless it. In your own strength, you get what you choose. But you can't have your stuff in me too. This is not a condemnation of wealth. There's no place in Scripture that you're going to find a blanket condemnation of wealth. It's not there. God blesses many wealthy individuals, and He blesses many with wealth. He also blesses many apart from wealth. 
and many who are wealthy are cursed because of it. It's a tool. The question of the godliness versus greed in your life has to do with, are you using this? Are you seeing your earthly treasure as a tool to glorify God and serve others? If we're going to reflect the reality of Christ, then we need to see these things the way God does, as a tool to glorify Him and to serve His people. All right, let's kick it into gear here. How do we, how do we steal? Most of us aren't robbing banks. If you are, repent, okay, and let's get done. Most of us don't steal like that. And remember, he's talking to church folks. So probably not a lot of active bank robbers in, in that moment. Although, you know, I, I've watched enough mafia movies and, and westerns to know that there are lots of people out there, you know, at least in scripts, doing bad things and then praying and going home to mama and sitting in church. Maybe that's you. If it is, repent. But I think more likely there are more subtle ways that we need to be aware of. We steal when we take what doesn't belong to us. Okay, it seems basic. It is basic. We take what doesn't belong to us. This involves overt stealing, the obvious, the robbing banks, the train robberies, all that kind of stuff. But it also includes borrowing without returning. It also includes seeing something, thinking I deserve it and the other person doesn't, so I'm just going to keep it. I like it, therefore it's mine. The idea of, tell me if you've heard this, finders, keepers, losers, weepers, right? That's an attitude of stealing. It's taking something that doesn't belong to me. This is why Prince John is the villain in the Robin Hood story. He might be the king, but he is using his power to oppress, and he is taking what does not belong to him. That he does not earn, but he has power. So he's able to take what doesn't belong to him. Now, Robin Hood might also be doing that. That's a deeper discussion. But from his perspective, he's taking what belongs to another to give back to them. We can wrestle with the morality of Robin Hood another time. For today, take a look at your own life. What ways are you taking things that don't belong to you? Maybe it's on your time card. Maybe it's taking some time off that your boss thinks you're working. Maybe it's shifting and cheating on your taxes. Maybe it's less overt. Maybe it's something as simple as taking advantage of others. I'm in a position of power. Therefore, you lose. And what I'm doing might not be illegal, according to the law, but in my heart I already know it's wrong. It's not Christ-like. I'm taking advantage of someone in a weaker position than I am. That is ungodly. It might include things like usury or excessive interest. We see that in the book of Proverbs over and over being condemned there, but Maybe that doesn't strike you the same way. How about price gouging? 
I got something you want. And there's a fair price, but I know you want it. And I have a special advantage right now, so I'm going to stick it to you. It's not that far from extortion. These things overlap. Taking advantage of others, usury, price gouging, generally dishonest dealings. When you see things in the Proverbs specifically talking about cheating scales, differing weights, the way that they did their transactions, they didn't have the, the paper money, the, the random things that we use now and assign value to, but they would weigh out their money in silver or gold, other commodities. They would barter. And so if I'm weighing it on a scale to get it to the right place to match that price, but I have cheating weights that says it's three shekels, when it's really only one shekel. I'm cheating you. I'm using these weights to take advantage. I switch the price. Bait and switch kind of an idea. I see your license plate is from out of town, so the fines just went up. Or the price of your meal just went up. These things are dishonest. Cheating scales. We steal when we take what doesn't belong to us. We steal when we take glory from God. Glory that is due to Him alone, and we steal it for ourselves. Secondly, we steal when we don't honor God with our work ethic. When we don't honor God with our work ethic. This happens when work becomes about getting not serving or glorifying. How many of you know, I can work really hard and be greedy, or I can work really hard and be generous. Same actions, different motivations. My heart is the issue. This is why it's so hard for us to judge someone else's actions. I can look at what somebody else is doing, and I don't know their heart. I think I do, because I think I'm smarter than I actually am. God knows everything. He knows what's going on inside. So when we answer to God, we answer to a perfect judge. When you answer to me, you answer to a very, very flawed and imperfect judge. And that's why you don't actually answer to me. And I don't answer to you. We are imperfect. But we have to recognize that the motivation, what's going on inside of us, can take our hard work and turn it into a dishonorable thing. We become, as we often might call it, workaholics. Slaves to the work. And if I'm a slave to that thing, I am worshiping that thing. And my work then becomes an idol. Again, the Sabbath is an important part of this. The tithe to remind me I can never work hard enough to be all that I need to be in myself. Whatever I have comes from God's hand. We steal by not honoring God with our work ethic. The Protestant work ethic came out of the Reformation, and as I mentioned before, it recaptured the idea that all work is sacred if done well to the glory of God. 
the thinking at that time had developed uh, over the centuries that there were sacred callings, sacred vocations, the priest, the theologian, you know, the, 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 the ministry. This is a sacred thing. And everything else is less. These, are, are, these secular jobs, they don't have the same opportunity to glorify God. They are not holy in the same way. The Protestant work ethic said, wait a minute, when I look at the New Testament in particular, but even when I look at Ecclesiastes and I look at the Old Testament, I see a different picture. I don't see a delineation between some magical office of, of a particular sacred and holy job. The priest has a sacred vocation. The sheep herder also has a sacred vocation. The plowman has a sacred vocation because all of it is to be done to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whatever you do, talking about eating and drinking, uh, stuff that's uh, first offered to idols, none of this really matters the way you think it does. But let me tell you this as a bottom line guide, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. This is an underlying thought in sacred vocation. Colossians 3.17, <clears throat> whatever you do, do it all in the name of Jesus. Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. Like you're working for God and not for a human master. Don't get stuck in this mindset that my boss is a jerk, therefore I'm justified in slacking off. I don't have to give my best effort because he doesn't deserve it. She doesn't deserve it. When I do that, I am stealing I am dishonoring God because I'm failing to recognize that my work ethic is a reflection not of my earthly boss, but of me, my character. And I'm failing to re reflect the reality of Christ in so doing. We take what doesn't belong to us. We don't honor God with our work ethic. Third, we fail to love and serve others. We fail to love and serve others. This is a higher priority for the Christ follower than taking care of my own needs. It's a natural priority for all of us to take care of our own needs. When you get cold, you put on a jacket. You probably haven't been cold very much in the last couple of days, so you're looking for air conditioning. Right? You're going to find a way to take care of your creature comforts. You get hungry, so you eat. You get thirsty, so you drink. We have any number of urges that we act upon just out of our natural desire to take care of our own needs. But the Christ follower is called to a supernatural priority, that I'm going to prioritize the needs of others over myself because it's the overflow of my love for God. Turn to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, at the end of the chapter, we see Jesus being confronted once again, as he tends to, to, to be confronted. Starting with verse 34. Here we go again. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, this is significant because of what comes in the very next statement, the very next clause here. 
He silenced the Sadducees, the one religious leader group. The Pharisees get together and they bring an expert in the law, a theological lawyer, if you will, to test him with this question. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Now, that might sound to you a little bit like what the rich young ruler said. Which ones? Because nobody's going to keep the whole law. So which ones do I have to keep? Which ones matter more than others? Now, the problem is, if I say, if Jesus says this law is greater than this law, or you know, this word of God is more important than this word of God, now I'm denigrating God's commands. I'm saying that I know better than the scriptures. Whatever he says here, he's bound to be trapped. At least that's their plan. But Jesus, being Jesus, answers perfectly and says in verse 37, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. Now how can he say that? Because everything else comes out of that. God first. Everything else comes from that. This is why he says in verse 39, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Paul will later say that love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. If I love God more than anything, I express that with the overflow of my love for God pouring out onto others in generosity. So he says, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. In other words, if I do these two things, I won't violate any other part of the law. If I love God more than anything, then I'm going to be very diligent to approach God on his terms, not on mine. I'm going to be very diligent to make sure that I'm doing what God wants, not just what my natural urges tell me to do. And if I love God with all my heart, then I'm going to love my neighbor as myself. And if I love my neighbor as myself, I'm going to do everything that I can to take care of their needs. The same as I would for me. If I'm hungry, I eat. If my neighbor's hungry, I feed him. If I'm cold, I put on a jacket or a blanket. If my neighbor is cold, I clothe them. And I do all of this for the glory of God in the name of Christ, the very best that I can. We steal, we dishonor God, we show personal greed when we fail to love and serve others. Fourth, we forget that we are managers, not owners. We forget that we are managers, not owners. In Genesis 1, right after God creates male and female, intentionally and specifically, He says to them, go, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. He gives dominion over the earth and He puts the man and woman in charge of creation. This is why Christians have the most clearly vested interest in ecology and taking care of the planet, taking care of uh, uh, everything going on in this created order because we recognize the assignment as God's people Israel recognized the assignment that God gave to every human being to care for his creation. You cannot, as a Christ follower, say, I don't care about the earth and taking care of our ecology. 
It's really important because it's not ours. And when we forget that it's not ours and we think it is, that we own it and we get to use it for our own pleasures rather than the fact that we have been assigned the task of caring for it and allowed the privilege of using it to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, then we are stealing. When we forget who is the owner and who is the manager, we are, if you will, embezzling from God. The same as if in my job I decide to forget that my boss owns the company and all of the, the, the assets that go along with it, and I take it as my own. You go to jail for these things. The same thing is true when we're talking about these spiritual realities. We're managers, not owners, and we dare not forget that. Turn to Malachi 3. Where is that? If you're in Matthew, turn just back a little bit. to uh, It's the book right before Matthew. Oh man, I want to read more of this than I have time for, but let's start with uh, Malachi 3, verse 6. The Lord speaking through the prophet Malachi to his people Israel. He says, I, the Lord, do not change, so you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Speaking of his mercy here. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. God's mercy, their sin. He calls them to repentance. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Now he gets into the details. And you'll see how this seems to reflect very much what Paul is saying. Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. He goes on to talk about the blessings that he will pour out on them. But the focus here is not just on the blessings. And for Israel it is about the tithe, the, the actual 10%, but it's more than that. The focus here is not on the tithe, it's on the robbery. That in bringing offerings to God as if you are giving your best when you are not, you're stealing from God. This is what Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead for in the New Testament. They were giving gifts that were not required. They were giving over and above what was required. And they said, hey, we're, we're going to sell this property. We're going to give all the money to the church. But they only gave part of the money to the church and kept part of it for themselves. Really, it's not that big of a deal, except for it is. And Peter said to them, hey, wasn't this yours to do with as you please in the first place? Why do you want to lie to the Holy Spirit? And how's that working out for you? Because now you're dead. And the husband lies to the Holy Spirit, lies to the church, and pretends to be giving God his best when he's not giving God his best. He didn't have to do it at all. It wasn't required. 
But in lying about what he was bringing, he was stealing from God. His wife comes in, she's complicit in it, has the same story, boom, dead, buried. Guys, if we think this stuff doesn't matter to God, we're not reading the book. This has everything to do with our view of these things. What we do comes out of the way we think. If I focus on my understanding of how I'm going to make ends meet, rather than trusting God with my whole heart and not leaning on my own understanding, I'm going to worry and stress and toil and struggle and try to figure out how to make ends meet and try to figure out how to get out from underneath this, this big pile of debt. Well, what I need to be doing is focusing my attention on the one who owns it all and living as a steward of his goods so that everything I do, everything I think about money or work or value, worth, is rooted in Christ. So I see it from God's perspective rather than my own. When I do that, I no longer have room for greed. Can I be a Christian and be a millionaire? Absolutely, yes. The question isn't how much you have, but what are you doing with it? If it weren't for Christian millionaires, we would have a lot fewer hospitals in this country. If it weren't for Christian millionaires, or however the math goes after that, I, you know, I don't, that's beyond my pay grade. If it weren't for wealthy Christians, much of the work of the church would be greatly inhibited. But wealthy people who hold on to their wealth, who are hoarding it, storing it up in New Testament terms in new grain bins, not that there's anything wrong with, with spending money on your, on your capital investments, but when it's so that I can have more, so that I can get more, so that I can have some more, and I can get some more, then I've missed the perspective that God calls us to. I need to get rid of the greed in my life. How am I going to do that? How am I going to put on a life that fits? First off, choose to see wealth from an eternal perspective. Choose to see wealth from an eternal perspective. It is a choice. I get to decide how I look at things. Some of you are natural worriers, right? Say amen if you know what that's like, right? Some of you can really have a hard time just trusting and not struggling. That's okay. It's not okay to worry. It's okay to have a hard time with it. But I get to choose when that worry comes, when that stress comes, I get to choose what I'm going to do with it. Am I going to hold on to that as if I can control it? I don't know how I'm going to pay the bills. I'm going to have to do more. I'm going to have to strive. I guess I'm going to have to start working on Sundays because if I don't do that, I'm not going to be able to get out of debt. I'm all for working more. But when you do it at the expense of godly priorities, do you really expect God to bless it? I need to choose to see wealth from an eternal perspective. That means I need to see it as a tool to be used for His glory and for the good of others. I want to get whatever wealth that I can get for the purpose, not of padding my own pocketbook, 
but of doing more ministry, doing more good for other people, sharing the word of God better, more effectively, more globally. I need to choose to view wealth from an eternal perspective, to trust God as my provider, to rest in a Sabbath, to worship with tithes and offerings. Choose to see wealth from an eternal perspective. Next, prioritize God's glory over my need to understand. If I'm going to put on a life that fits, if I'm going to walk worthy of God, I need to prioritize God's glory over my need to understand. In other words, I need to decide that honoring God with my wealth is more important than my understanding how the math works. I can't afford to tithe. I'm already stretched tight. You will always be stretched too tight to honor God with your money. This is where we have to walk by faith, not by sight. I'm not tell me, telling you, do not hear me saying, go mortgage your house so you can give to someone's ministry. That is ungodly, stupid, and sinful. And I've heard preachers say it. And so have most of you. <sighs> Justin Peters just tweeted recently, if you hear a preacher saying, sow a seed into my ministry so that you can be blessed many fold over, run, it's a false teacher. Guys, if that's why we're giving, we are missing the point. We need to honor God with our wealth, not use God as some kind of Ponzi scheme, some kind of pyramid scheme, where if I can just give a little here, then I'm going to get this much more. And if I give this much more, then God's going to give me this much more. If that's our purpose, it's a little bit like trying to be good to your enemy so that you can heap burning coals on his head. You've missed the point. I need to prioritize God's glory over my need to understand what God is doing. He does not need to tell me. If he does tell me, I don't have to exercise faith. And he calls us to faith. Trust God. Make that a priority. Lastly, if I'm going to put on a life that fits, I need to let my love for God overflow in generosity toward others. I cannot call myself a Christ follower. I cannot honestly say that I love God more than anything else if I'm stingy, if I'm greedy, if I'm holding on to my stuff. I need to live open-handedly. I need to give to the poor. Now we can justify a lot of stinginess and greed by saying if I give it to them, they're just going to use it for fill in the blank. Well, I know they're just going to spend it on drugs. I know they're just going to go get another drink or whatever else. Guys, it's really not about what they do with it. It's about where your heart is. What am I doing to honor God with this? Do whatever it takes. Prioritize God's glory over your need to understand so that you can let your love for God overflow in generosity toward others. Our verse for today. Anyone who's been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with their own hands so that they may have something to share with those in need. When I allow my thoughts and actions to be driven by selfishness, 
it does not matter if you're, we, if you're rich or poor. Selfishness is selfishness. Greed is an inside job. <clears throat> when I allow my thoughts and my actions to be driven by selfishness, I am not walking worthy of who I am in Christ. I need to have the same mindset as Jesus, trusting my perfect heavenly Father to provide for my needs and approaching my work as an opportunity to glorify God. I need to show up on time to glorify God. I need to stay a little later to glorify God. I need to not stretch my lunch hours and, and stretch my breaks so that I can glorify God. I need to be known as the most honest person at work to glorify God. Not just so I can get a better review. If I'm going to do this, I need to see it His way. I need to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength and let that overflow in generosity toward others. A life that fits a child of God sees wealth, work, and worth through God's eyes. Let's pray. Father in heaven, <clears throat> you have given us things. And whether they become blessings or curses, whether they become wings to fly or millstones around our necks, depends entirely on what we use them for. And whether we will Surrender them to you. Father, help us to recognize in your son Jesus that he didn't put anything ahead of honoring you and saving us. He always did your will at great expense to himself, even to the point of death. Give us that mindset. He came to seek and to save the lost. Give us that mindset. Father, help us to find ourselves in you, knowing that you are more precious than silver. Father, remind us that everything we need is in Jesus, that Christ is enough to meet every one of our needs. We pray these things in His name. Amen.